get singing those, those old songs that we've sung for many years. So if you take your Bibles, go with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. We looked this morning a little bit at understanding the Abrahamic covenant. I think for me, the key to understanding all of the Bible is understanding correctly this Abrahamic covenant. We'll try to get through the covenant tonight and then also take a look at some of the kings that Isaiah ministered under so we can get an idea of the, the, the events of what was going on in Israel's life that would bring such messages from Isaiah. So we're looking at Isaiah, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 36. We're looking at the third aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. And we'll pray in just a moment. But remember, God created Adam and Eve and gave Adam dominion over all the earth. He was to tread upon and subdue and bring all things uh, for the glory of God that, that God had created. Of course, Adam fell into sin and he lost, his, he lost his ability to rule and reign. That was given to Satan, who's now the prince of the power of the age and the god of this age. He is running and ruling this uh, corrupt uh, creation that, or corrupt uh, earth that God has, has created for us. But we, we need somebody to come and take it back from Satan and, and, and for, do it all for the glory of God. That is the, the man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so Isaiah is really going to be pointing everybody and pointing us to the future, to the day yet future for us when Jesus Christ returns and sits on the throne in Israel. They have a land. They have a king with physical descendants. Uh, the, the Jewish people will be uh, flooding the earth and... and uh, many nations as well, but also there are spiritual blessings in this millennial kingdom. And Isaiah speaks much about this kingdom. And so for us to get a good understanding, we want to put all this into perspective. So let's pray, and then we'll look, uh, look to God's word. Father, thank you for our time together tonight as we continue to think about your promises to Abraham, which were unconditional. It is a guarantee that they will happen. And we know they have not yet happened in its fulfillment, but there will be a day when Israel will be believing in the Messiah, in their land, and the Messiah Jesus will be sitting on a throne on this earth. He'll be ruling with a rod of iron and for 1,000 years displaying what a perfect man can do for your honor and your glory. Thank you, Father, that we are in Christ in the church age. We are believers. We are part of his family and joint heirs. And I pray that during our time here in the church age, we'll be trained for righteousness. We will be trained for serving and doing whatever roles in the administration of the government that our Savior would choose. So thank you that, that we can learn much from uh, Israel and from Isaiah. Just open our minds and give us great depths of understanding and wisdom regarding these matters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in Genesis 12, God speaks to Abram and says, Abram, get out of your country and the, the land of your fathers and go to a land which I will give you. So there's the land promise. And then he said, you will, I will make you a great nation. There's your physical descendants promise. And I will bless you and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's the spiritual blessings. We see in Deuteronomy 28 through 30, those three chapters, if Israel obeys the Lord, God promises physical prosperity. Now, that's not for the church. There is no prosperity gospel for the church. If we are obedient to the Lord, he doesn't promise big bank accounts and good gardens and full houses with lots of children. That's not a promise for the church, but it was for Israel. If they chose to obey the Lord by faith, trusting him, God would increase their, 
their uh, gardens and their fields and their flocks and their herds and their families. And one Jewish man would cause a multitude of the enemy to scatter. One man would go up against a huge army and the whole army would scatter. This is what God would do for them. But if they disobeyed, God would curse them. God would take away their fields and their flocks and their herds. He would take away their children and put them into captivity by a strange nation. And if they were disobedient long enough in willful rejection of God's grace, God said, I will scatter you out of the land. But then in Deuteronomy 30, he made a promise. I will bring you back. It will not be forever. I will bring you back. I will finish my promise to Abram. Now, Abraham's promise has not been fulfilled, but they are being regathered and praise the Lord for all of that. Remember the second one about the physical descendants? God took Abraham out one night and said, Abraham, look at the stars in the sky. As many as are the stars of the sky will be your descendants, if you could even name them. Earlier, he said, your descendants will be as the dust of the earth. And sure enough, the Jewish people have populated the earth and been on the earth now since the days of Abraham. But in 2 Samuel 7, God said to David, David, I'm making you a promise. You will have descendants. And one of your descendants will be my king. He will serve me with an upright heart, and his kingdom will last forever. At that point, David knew, one of my children, one of my male descendants, will sit on the throne forever and forever and forever. Of course, we know that to be Jesus. So there is the physical descendants and the ruling of the king promise, but there's a third promise that God said he will do for Israel no matter what. It's found in Ezekiel 36. Look at Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22. Ezekiel 36, verse 22, God says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this, all the, listen, fulfilling all the Abrahamic covenants, God says, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. So Israel was scattered amongst all the nations, and what did they do? They made God's name so common and casual. They profaned it. They blasphemed it. God said, I'm going to bring you back and do great things, but not because you deserve it, not because you're such a great nation. I'm doing it, God says, for my name's sake. He made a promise. He has to keep it. God will keep it. He goes on and he says, verse 23, And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. Here's what he's going to do, verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. That's the land promise. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. You know what that is? justification. The nation Israel is going, right now, they're in unbelief. They don't believe in their Messiah, Jesus. They reject him still to this day. There's a blindness in their eyes. But God says there's a day coming when they will be in the land of Israel, and they will look upon Jesus when he comes in his second coming with power and glory, and their eyes will be opened, and they will believe. And at that moment, they believe, just like you and I, all of their filthiness and all of their idolatry will be cleansed. It will be removed. God is going to save the Jewish people spiritually, a spiritual salvation. Look at verse 26. I will give you a new heart. That's the the new disposition. That's the law of God written on their heart. And put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Right now, the Jewish people do not have a heart for God, for Jesus Christ. 
They cannot relate to him. They can't love him because their heart is stone. God is going to take out that heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh that they can love God and they can submit and yield and, and obey God. And this is going to be a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So God made a promise. He is going to spiritually renew Israel. And the nation will someday be a believing nation. That is spiritual blessings. And this is called, in Jeremiah 31, a new covenant. The old covenant was written on tablets of stone, and it couldn't change anybody's heart. All it could do was condemn us as sinners, condemn Israel as sinners. God said, this old covenant, which you've broken over and over, it's different. The new covenant, I will write my law, not on tablets of stone, but on your very heart inside you. And I'm going to give you the power of my Holy Spirit to get you to do right. And I will be your God and you will be my people. Now that has not yet happened. It is happening in the future. So in the days of Isaiah, Isaiah knows that this is coming. He knows God has promised a land and a king and and spiritual blessings beyond measure. And every time he spoke to Israel, what would they say? We don't want it. We don't want it. We don't want it. And so Isaiah's message is harsh at times, very harsh, as he explains to the Israelites the hardness of their heart, and the response of it, God will remove them from the land, and sure enough, they do. They get removed. But then Isaiah always makes promises like this. He says, but there is coming a day when God will make you a great nation. He'll put you back in your land, and you will have the greatest king. This king will have a sevenfold manifestation of the Holy Spirit. He will be able to do everything right. Every judgment will be right. And there is no one that needs to be his counselor. He will do this all by himself. Oh, man, it's, it's such a great book because it gives us such a perspective. But I want you to know that everything Isaiah is talking about hinges on the Abrahamic covenant. God made a promise to Israel, and it is going to happen. So Isaiah speaks much about this future kingdom when there'll be land, and there'll be a king, and there'll be spiritual blessings to all the nations. All right. So we're going to talk more as we go through about this covenant with Abraham, but I want you to know it's a huge part of the Bible. We're not involved in the Abrahamic covenant at all. We're not under covenant with God. We have the spiritual blessing of regeneration that's promised to all the families of the earth, but we're not not in an agreement with God where he's going to give us land and he's going to give us a king and we're his subjects. We are his bride, the church, a very special thing. So we have to understand our church is distinct from Israel. And God's promises for Israel, they will happen. They're going to come true. I will guarantee, guarantee, Someday this very earth will have Jesus walking on it again. He's going to renew it, recreate it, regenerate it like the Garden of Eden. And he physically will be sitting in Israel, physically, on a throne, ruling and reigning with righteousness. You and I will have glorified bodies at that point. We'll be raptured uh, or we'll have been raised from the dead at the rapture, either way. We will have glorified bodies, and the Lord in Jerusalem will say, hey, I want a Luke Borchard to go and do such and such, and I want him to be over these cities and over this area. And report back to me. And, and so in, in the administration of Jesus in his government, there's a role and a ministry for the church. <laughs> right now, he's training us for faithfulness. And if we can't be faithful right now, why would he give us any responsibility in the future? But if we're, resp- if we're responsible for little things, just little areas of faithfulness, being here, worshiping, having a pure heart, edifying one another, you know, all of these things, God says, wow, if they can do that without seeing me, then great, great rewards in the future. Great ruling responsibilities. All right, so that's the covenant of Abraham. 
And Isaiah is going to speak much about it. Now what I'd like you to do is uh, switch over to your second set of notes and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 1.1. Isaiah 1.1. We're not going to go this slow. We're going to hopefully take a chapter, a service, a chapter during a, a service time. That'll give us 66 messages. And we'll actually do some chapters, a couple of chapters at once here and there, just to inst- because we can't get labored down with every detail. It's not possible. Well, it is, but there has to be some balance. Isaiah 1.1. Here's what the Word of God says. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Yatham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. All right, this verse is our introduction to the whole thing. Now, it talks about a vision, the vision. It is one vision. But Isaiah's ministry took place, I think, over about 60 years. So if he received his commission from the Lord when he was like an 18-year-old, he had 60 years of ministry under various kings, a long and a very fruitful ministry. And these visions and these prophecies were written down and then compiled and put together in an arrangement for us. A very, actually, a very amazing arrangement. There are 66 chapters. Just like in the Bible, there are 66 books. The first 39 chapters are like the Old Testament 39 books, where you see in the 39 chapters God's judgment upon the sin of Israel and the sin of the surrounding nations. And there's woes and there's judgments, but at the same time, there's, there's much spoken about mercy and the future kingdom and the blessings that God is going to give to those who believe. And so there's a mixture of judgment and and mercy in those first 39 chapters. And then in chapter 40, there's almost like a new cry as is, comfort my people Jerusalem, and here comes the forerunner of the Messiah. And in chapters 40 through 66, those 26 chapters kind of picture the 26 chapters or books of the New Testament where it speaks about the ministry of Jesus. So starting in chapter 40, when we get there, you are just going to be filled with truth and wisdom about the person of Jesus, both the, the fact that he's a suffering savior, but also the fact that he's a ruling and a righteous and a glorious king. And you get the suffering and the glorious king, sometimes in the very same verse with Isaiah. So it's a vision. This, listen, this vision is big. It is huge. It starts out calling the heavens and the earth to a trial. Like I said this morning, God is the judge, and he says, I want all the heavens and I want the earth to be a witness to what I'm about to say. And there Israel is on the, is on the stand, and they are guilty as can be. And the Lord is just going un, to unveil their guiltiness, and he wants the heavens and earth to hear this. That's how it starts. But do you know how it ends? And the, how it ends is Jesus Christ comes back to this planet, and he recreates the heavens and the earth and he, he renews them in what's called the millennial kingdom. And for a thousand years, this current earth will prosper. Like seeds will go in the ground. And like in the Garden of Eden, there'll be just a flourish of abundance and everything. It's going to be a marvelous time. And that's how it ends. What a vision. It starts out speaking in chapter 1 and these, these opening chapters about Jerusalem. Isaiah, well, God, calls Jerusalem Sodom and Gomorrah, which... Nasty, nasty cities. That's how ugly and corrupt and immoral Jerusalem was. But by the time we get to the end of the book, it's a new Jerusalem that is a joy and a delight to all the earth, and it is where you and I and all the saints will dwell. And so Isaiah is giving us this huge panoramic picture of God's renewal of the entire earth. 
there is going to be, by the end of Isaiah, a new, a new people, Israel, that'll be believers. There's going to be a new city, Jerusalem, that'll be spectacular. It'll be like the shining crown of all of, all of planet Earth. There's going to be a whole new Earth. There'll be a whole new universe um, because Jesus Christ is coming back. And that is the whole statement of Isaiah. Don't lose your focus on God. If you lose your focus and you don't trust the Lord, terrible things will take place. But if you trust the Lord, he is coming and he's going to establish this kingdom that is promised to Abraham and it'll be glorious beyond measure. Well, that's the bigness of the vision. But I also want you to know, even though it's a huge vision about renewal of this planet and a renewal of the city of Jerusalem and of Israel, it's also so focused. Listen, when I was in Athens, Greece a couple years ago, whenever it was, and I was we were in Athens that one night, and we were staying at a hotel, and it was, it was kind of a nice hotel, but it was like just a common tourist hotel, right down there, not too far from the government buildings. And um, it was a busy night, like packed everywhere, like the, the dining hall was packed, everything was packed, and it was noisy, there, were, you know, there was music here and music there, and all, all sorts of things going on. And it's like your, your mind almost got carried away with everything that was going on. And then all of a sudden, here I was with the, the group that was on our tour, of the Apostle Paul's journeys, all of a sudden there was like a noise and everybody, everybody started shouting and a man got out of a limousine and it was the candidate for the conservative prime minister, uh, whatever, who the, whoever the conservative candidate was for the election. It was coming up and I was within like two feet from him. I could have reached out and touched him if I had known it was even him. But all of a sudden, everybody's focus went from whatever they were doing to watching this man walk into this building and go into this uh, big conference hall. And, and I thought, that's kind of like the way it is with Isaiah. There's noise because you've got Assyria, you've got Egypt, you've got all these nations around Israel. You've got Jerusalem and their sin. You've got the people of Israel and Samaria. You have all this activity. And then all of a sudden, Isaiah says, but wait a minute, we're focusing sharply on one person. And he becomes, he, he, he starts out like a stump, like the shoot of, a, of an olive tree. If you cut an olive tree down, the root in the ground is going to produce another shoot, and there'll be a shoot that comes out of that. And it's, and it's like Isaiah says, wait, you guys, even though there's so much catastrophe going on and this world is falling apart, yet God is bringing out from the stump of Jesse a shoot. And this shoot is none other than the rod of Jesse, the, the, from, the, from the line of David, the tribe of Judah, and he will rise up to be the greatest king this world has ever seen. And so even though the vision of, of Isaiah is lengthy and full of words, yet I think everything is so focused on who is the coming king? Who is this child who will be born, who is the wonderful counselor, uh, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace? Who is, this, who is this rod of Jesse that will rise up but be persecuted and killed and then rise from the dead? And then he will come with power and glory. And simply by looking at the enemy, they just dissolve in, in his sight. You're talking, the whole book of Isaiah is focused on the person of Jesus. And I'll tell you why. In Isaiah 6, I think Isaiah being a young man, maybe 18, 20, 22, he gets a vision from God. And in Isaiah 6, in the year that Uzziah dies, he sees God on the throne. We're going to see this in a couple of weeks. You know who Isaiah sees in this vision? He sees God on the throne and the glory of his train. The, the robes of the Lord are so huge. They just fill, the glory of the Lord just fills the temple. And then he, he sees these cherubim crying out, holy, holy, holy. Um, it's going to be such a scene when we get there. But listen, 
The Gospel of John says, Isaiah looked at Jesus in his glory. I think Isaiah looked at Jesus and thought, this is the most holy, the most glorious, the greatest man who has ever lived. It is God in the flesh. And from then on, he writes this whole book, 66 chapters, about this Jesus, about this man that he saw in this vision. So I want you to be prepared for that. It's going to be distracting and a lot of details here and there, but always remember, we're looking at Jesus. Everything should come away with, wow, Jesus is coming and he is great. All right? Now, that's Isaiah 1, the vision. That's the two words, the vision. Okay. Um, it's a vision that uh, Isaiah, again, we don't know much about Isaiah. We don't know about Amos, his, his uh, father, but we do know this. He served under some kings, Uzziah, Jotham, uh, Yotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So I gave you in your outline uh, so, uh, just a few little details about each of these kings. Take your Bibles. Go with, go with me to Second Chronicles 26. I love the study of the kings, especially the kings of Judah. Some were good and godly and some were not. But Second Chronicles 26. We won't spend a lot of time, but I think just enough time for you to, to get a taste and a flavor of these various men. I want you to study on your own because we don't have time in a, in a worship service a preaching time, but study on your own these chapters of the kings that I listed, and you will be, uh, have even greater understanding of Isaiah. Here it is, Second Chronicles 26. Now all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was uh, 16 years old, made him king instead of his father Amaziah. So Uzziah is only a 16-year-old young boy. What does he do? He does, listen, everybody, he does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. He, he wants to obey the Lord, and he wants to follow after the Lord. So he does various things. He builds a seaport. He builds these copper mines down in Timnah. He, uh, he has a long ministry of 52 years. Verse 4 says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Verse 5, he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Here are some things he was able to do. He was able to go to war against all of his enemies, and he always had victory. Remember when God said, if you follow me, if you, have tr- if you have faith in me and you obey my word, I will bless you. I will bless your homes and your fields and your flocks. And even when you go to war, you will always win. You will never, ever lose if you go to war. Every time Uzziah went to war, he won. He made war. He made weaponry. He was able to make um, the ability to throw stones and shoot arrows from the walls of Jerusalem. He was a very creative and a gen- really a genius of a man of a king. He had great fame, verse 8 says, and he was exceedingly strong. He was a very strong leader and a good king. Uh, he built many towers. He, built, he dug wells and towers in the desert. Uh, agriculture, he, he was able to make the desert bloom. And he, he had flocks and herds populating the whole land. You know why? Because Assyria, the world power, was busy. They were being distracted. There was famine up north. The Assyrian kingdom up north was being distracted by other enemies, and they didn't have time to come down to Israel and Judah and and bother them. So during Uzziah's reign, there was economic prosperity. There was peace in the land. People could like just live their lives and, and, and have two houses, and they could have all sorts of things that they wanted because Uzziah was being prospered under God. It goes on and on, all the things that he did. He loved the soil. He was able to get it to, to prosper and, and all of this. He made many devices by skillful men for weapons, as I mentioned, and his fame and success was great. But look at verse 15. 
He made devices in Jerusalem invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and large stones. So his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped, listen, until he became strong. Once he became strong, he became arrogant in his heart. And he began to think, I've been doing all this myself. I don't, I don't need the Lord. I've got a great mind, and I've got everybody following me. I've got money. The nation's doing well. All my enemies have been put, have been put, uh, have been put down. Nobody can stop me. So when his heart was strong and he was lifted up to his destruction, he transgressed the Lord. Here's what he did. He went to the temple with some, some fire, and he, went, he wanted to go and do a priestly duty of putting incense on the altar of incense, right there by the holy place, by the holy of holies. Eighty priests tried to stop him. They were valiant men, and they said, King Uzziah, you cannot come in here. It is against the law. If you do, you will not honor God, and, uh, and he, he will curse you. He will put you down. Uzziah said, get out of my way. And he went in. God judged him immediately. He became a leper. And for the last 10 years of his ministry, of his kingship, he was a leper. He could not even be in the palace. He could not even be in Jerusalem. His son, Yotham, had to take over. So this is what's going on when Isaiah comes on the scene. Uzziah just had 52 years of great ministry, great leadership. Everybody is financially well off. Things are going well. People are still doing religion, but it's, it's not a heart religion. It's simply superficial. And Isaiah says, listen, everybody, we are in big trouble. We are in big trouble because we, our religion is so shallow. And if we don't get right with the Lord, if our, relig- if our relationship with the Lord is not true in the heart, God will judge us and he will, he will take care of us. He will chasten us. And so this happens in the days of Uzziah. Now his son, Jotham, takes over and he, he has a short reign, nothing big to talk about. Now go to um, 2 Kings 16. Well, what can we learn about Uzziah? As you're turning to 2 Kings 16, what can you learn about Uzziah? I think Uzziah's issue, I think he thought all of his accomplishments were his own doing. And he thought once he got to a certain level, nobody could stop him. He could do no wrong. There is such a danger with prosperity. There is such a danger with success. And I think you look at successful ministries, they are in such danger of falling because there can be an arrogance and an independence from the Lord where we say, hey, we don't need the Lord anymore. We don't need to pray. We don't need to have prayer meetings and, and be dependent on the Lord. I mean, there's a lot of ways that churches can go wrong and, and arrogance and pride can enter into ministry. And so we have to just remember, this is not about us. There, whatever success um, happens spiritually, you know, numerically, um, anyway, financially, it's not, it's not of us. It is because the Lord is working. It is his work. And we never, never get to the point where we, where we are spiritually indifferent. You know, we always have to remember, you know, he is the one that's working. It is to his credit and to his glory. God doesn't share his glory with anyone. All right, look at Ahaz. Ahaz uh, is the next major king under, under Isaiah's ministry. 2 Kings 16. It says in verse 2, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned only 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right. Now, Ahaz was a wicked king. He was evil in his heart. He was known as an idolater. He went around and accepted all the gods of the age. He promoted and he loved the godlessness of the society. 
He put idols and, and shrines up for all the false gods everywhere you walked, every street corner, every green tree, every place you looked. Ahaz said, I want a false god. I want an idol here. I want this here. He did everything he could to keep from trusting or acknowledging the, tr- the one true God. So this was a very, very bad king. Well, what happened in Ahaz's day was this. The king of Assyria came down and was attacking, now that they had become a very powerful nation up north, Assyria. You'll hear about Assyria a lot. Assyria, uh, the king of Assyria, came down and went into Syria, where Damascus is, and went down even into Israel. And so Israel and Damascus were very fearful. They thought, this giant country north of us is going to destroy us and take us captive. So they went to King Ahaz, and they said, Ahaz, we need you to, we need you to help. The three of us, our three nations together, can fight against Assyria, and we could possibly win. King Ahaz said, no way, I don't want any part of it, which was good, I think. He, he did right by that. Isaiah went to him and said, listen, Ahaz, do not have anything to do with the king of Syria, the king of Damascus, or the king of Israel. Have nothing to do with them. They are not on God's side. Rather, stay put and trust the Lord. King Ahaz says this. King Ahaz says, no, what I'm going to do, Isaiah, is I'm going to trust Assyria. Okay, so Assyria is the one that wants to attack his neighbors. He, so he goes to the king of Assyria, Tiglat-Pileser III, and he says, I want you to help me. And Tiglat said, I'll be glad to help you. He came down and he took Damascus, and eventually another Assyrian king took Israel. But then Tiglat Pileser went to Ahaz and said, Ahaz, you come to me, you give me tribute money, you ta- I'm going to tax you, and you will now kind of be my puppet nation. They, he didn't have a choice. So Ahaz, rather than trusting the Lord, trusted the enemy nation. And I thought of it like this. It's like one mouse going to a cat and saying, please, Mr. Cat, help me with this other mouse. Of course, the cat will say, sure, I'll be glad to help you with this, with, with this other mouse, but what's going to happen in the long run? The cat will get both. And sure enough, the cat's going to take both eventually. Um, actually, Babylon will do that. So this is King Ahaz. He was a weak man. He did not trust the Lord. He, he was a terrible leader, and he brought the whole nation down to great depths of, of wickedness and immorality. And so when we get to those chapters, you'll see Isaiah saying, listen, Ahaz is so wicked of a king. Get your eyes off of him. God has a better king, a Messiah king, who is going to be right. He's righteous, and he will never make a mistake, and he will never, never fail in his glory to God. And of course, it's Jesus. So Isaiah is going to give us a great picture of of Jesus during the days of King Ahaz. Um, Hey, one other thing about Ahaz. So one day he goes to Damascus because uh, Damascus and Israel had tried to attack Ahaz and he won. He was able to fend them off. But he went up to to Damascus and he's looking around and he sees some pagan altars. And he thinks, wow, those look really cool. They're modern. They're much nicer than the altar that Solomon made. And so he's, he had a guy come, and he said, take dimensions and pictures, not real pictures, but draw, you know, get some schematic of the altar in Damascus, which is, by the way, a pagan altar. And he sent the man back to Jerusalem, and this man built the, a replica of the altar in Damascus. And then Ahaz says, hmm, get rid of the bronze altar of God and put it on the north side of the temple where nobody goes. And let's put the new one right here so everybody can worship at this one. And then he began to offer sacrifices to f- pagan gods right at the temple where 
God's glory dwelt. So do you see what he was doing? Full of compromise, full of uh, pragmatism, saying, hey, let's just bring the world right into the worship of God. And Isaiah has much to say about worship in this book. Worship is going to be a big, a big theme. And so this is King Ahaz. And let's talk about one more king, King Hezekiah. You're in 2 Kings 16. Just turn over to 2 Kings 18. <coughs> Isaiah's ministry runs all the way through Hezekiah's ministry, and, and I want you to think about Hezekiah as a good king. So Uzziah was a good king until the very end of his life. Then he fell into great pride. Ahaz, just a wicked king all around. And then Hezekiah, a good king. But he had his own issues, and we'll talk about those when we get to Isaiah 37, 38, and 39. But um, here's what it says about Hezekiah, 2 Kings 18, verse 2. He was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. Verse 3, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places. He broke the sacred pillars. These are things that Ahaz would have put up. So he removed them. He cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nahushtan, meaning the snake. So the, remember the story of the bronze serpent on a pole? And uh, people looked at it and lived during those days in, in the book of Numbers. They, fought, they took that, that snake on a bronze pillar and carried it with them and actually worshipped it continually until Hezekiah's days. And Hezekiah was so fed up with idolatry, he broke that thing and, uh, and destroyed it. Look at verse 5. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. So this was an incredible godly man. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Now do you see how that ties in? Ahaz, what did Ahaz do? He ran to king, the king of Assyria and said, please help me, please help me, we'll become your slaves. Hezekiah becomes the king and he says, I'll have nothing to do with king, the king of Assyria. Nothing. We will not serve him. We will not pay him. We will not do anything. We'll cut off all ties. It's almost like, I mean, you can see it in our own politics. One president is very pro-Israel and then another president could come up which is very pro-Palestinian. And then we're like, oh no, what a policy for foreign affairs. And then we're like, let's, let's get another leader who is pro-Israel. And, and this, is what is, this is what Israel was going through. One king hated Assyria. Another king was for Assyria, even though they were the enemy. And then, um, then finally Hezekiah comes on and says, we'll have nothing to do with Assyria. So what does Assyria do? King Skenekrib by this time. He is angry. He comes down and he takes the whole coast and then he moves into Judah, where Hezekiah is the king, and he begins to destroy one city after another. And Hezekiah is absolutely terrified. He doesn't know what to do. He could go to Egypt for help. He could try to do something. He doesn't know what to do. Skenekerb is coming to his neighborhood, burning cities and destroying all the fortified cities. You know how that worked? If this is Jerusalem, this is the capital city where Hezekiah lives. All around Jerusalem are fortified cities. These are cities with strong walls and towers and lots of military might and force. So if you want to get to the capital, you've got to break through all these fortified cities. King Skenekrib of Assyria was getting every single city and taking it down. Hezekiah's like, um, Skenekrib is at our doorstep. Sure enough, 
Schenecker was right outside the city walls. He's got 185,000 soldiers, and he's taunting Hezekiah over the wall, saying, open the doors, or we will you know, crash through them, and we will destroy all of you. So what does, Isaiah come up, what does Isaiah say to Hezekiah? Trust the Lord. Just believe him. God is going to protect you. He's made a promise for land, physical descendants, and spiritual blessings. And if you trust him, he will do miraculous things. Hezekiah cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, you have to do something. We are, we are, we are not able to do anything ourselves. That night, an angel of the Lord comes, and you know, you know the story, wipes out 185,000 of the Assyrian army. They are just dead. Schenecker looks out, and he's like, I lost my whole army. I have no choice. He runs back home, and there his own son murders him um, shortly after that. So th- that's what's going on in the book of Isaiah. You've got Uzziah, a very prosperous king, but then the people are arrogant, and they're satisfied in their houses, and they don't even care about the Lord, except they, they love religion, but they don't love the Lord. Then you've got Ahaz, who is willing to give in to everybody. He gives into the whole culture of the society. He gives into the wicked kings that are enemies, and he causes the nation to reach the ultimate low. And then Hezekiah comes on the scene and says, no, we're going to stand for godliness, and it's going to be painful, but we're going to do it. And so we're going to fight and, and stand with the Lord no matter what. And so you have all these contrasts. So when we go through Isaiah, you'll see definite parts where it was the low time of Ahaz, and it was the good time of Hezekiah. And I mean, you'll just see the ebb and flow of it all. And if you read these stories of the kings and chronicles and kings, um, the, really the book of Isaiah will come together very quickly. So when we start going quickly chapter through chapter, you'll be familiar with the Assyrian Empire, and then we'll learn the names of the different kings, and you'll, you'll hear these stories, and you'll see what Isaiah was telling them. And I think there's a lot of application, really, for the church. The church is not mentioned in Isaiah. It's Old Testament. We're, we're New Testament. We're a New Testament creation. Um, so we won't find a reference to the church or the ministry of pastor, deacons, or edification for the body of Christ. That's all New Testament. But we do get examples of Isaiah, how he dealt with the issues of pride and immorality and lack of trust, and, and we can apply much. Plus, we get the hope and a beautiful picture of Jesus coming back because, listen, our nation's not going to last forever. But Jesus will, and, and the kingdom of Israel will last forever. And when he's ruling here, we're going to be like, these are the glory days of earth. The Messiah King is on the throne. Righteousness is abounding everywhere. Those are days that are yet to come. It's going to be great. So there's a lot of hope in the book of Isaiah. His name, by the way, means the Lord saves. The Lord is the source of salvation. And that's the whole goal. He is going to deliver Israel out of their mess if they will trust him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this uh, lesson in the kings, as we think about understanding the times of, of Isaiah, we understand that you made promises to Abraham about the nation Israel that would, they would have a land and a king and they would have spiritual blessings. And it has never happened yet to this day that all of those are fulfilled. But we know they will be, just like Isaiah knew they would be. And uh, we don't ever want to lose our focus from that. But Father, also to think about these kings with their... Sometimes their arrogance, their pride, and their own accomplishments. I mean, those are lessons that we can learn greatly here. Um, This ministry is not about us. It is about you and your righteousness. It is about you and your work in this day as we are your witnesses. And we want to be faithful to our calling, even though Israel at the time wasn't. We want to be faithful to be proclaimers of the good news, 
so people know that we have a Savior, Jesus. He's coming back, and he is ultimately going to rule over this present earth, and he will bring everything into conformity to your will. Thank you that we are not a hopeless, um, destitute people, but we have great, great, great things in store. We pray for faithfulness and just joy right now as we serve you. Give us a good week in, in ministry and evangelism, and may Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.